Welcome to Financial Modelers Corner, where we discuss the art and science of financial modeling with your host, Paul Barnhurst. Financial Modelers Corner is sponsored by Financial Modeling Institute. Welcome to Financial Modelers Corner. I am your host, Paul Barnhurst. This is a brand new podcast where we talk all about the art and science of financial modeling with distinguished guests and modelers from around the globe. The Financial Modelers Corner podcast is brought to you by Financial Modeling Institute. FMI offers the most respected accreditations in financial modeling. I'm thrilled to welcome our guest on the show today, Andy Tempty. Andy, welcome to Financial Modelers Corner. Thanks for having me on the show, Paul. Well, thank you. I'm excited to have you on. I know I got the opportunity to be on your show a while back, and now I get to have you, so I'm really excited. We like to start off the show, we ask every guest this with kind of a fun question. Tell me about the worst financial model you've ever seen. So the the worst financial model that I that I ever saw was part of an acquisition uh, process, and it showed up on my desk, handwritten on a piece of paper. So it wasn't even in uh, any kind of uh, of program. You know, you're supposed to make decisions about buying another company, bringing teams of people on board from a piece of paper. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> that would be tough. And was it? I mean, was it in pretty good shape, even though it was on paper, or was it a total mess? Yeah, it was. It was. It was a mess. Yeah, that's an easy decision. I'll ask this. I'm curious to see what you'll say. What was the learning experience from that one? Well, I was the chief executive of Kaplan Professional. Uh, Kaplan's a learning organization, so everything is about uh, learning and growth. And the learning experience was you know, going back to that individual and saying, okay, we're going to make a pretty big decision here. There's capital at risk and uh, we need more rigor. And I would like for you to learn more about what a proper financial model looks like and uh, gave that individual some time, uh, come back and revisit. So try to, you know, really treat everything as a learning experience. I love that. That's a great motto to live by is treat everything as a learning experience because it definitely allows us to grow a lot more than if we don't. That's right. So I like that. So now can you just tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your background? Just tell us a little bit about about you and what you're doing today. Yeah, so I'm sitting here uh, along the beautiful Mississippi River in western Wisconsin in a town called La Crosse, kind of halfway between Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota and Madison, Wisconsin. Born and raised here, spent seven years of our lives. Uh, the only other town we lived in was in Iowa City, Iowa, doing master's and PhD there. Uh, I wanted to be a finance professor. My purpose in life is to teach, coach, mentor, and uh, hopefully inspire a few along the way. So I wanted to be a finance professor. And uh, then I met a guy named Carl Swayzer. He Carl was the head of the finance department at the University of Iowa. He was starting this little business called the Swayzer CFA Study Program to help uh, students uh, study for the Chartered Financial Analyst exam. I was there. I was hungry. I was eager. He hated writing uh, about economics, 
I had an economics undergrad and I said, let me write the econ notes uh, for you. And we did that the first year and the rest is history. We sold our business in 1999 to Kaplan. And then I spent uh, 22 years leading various parts of the Kaplan organization. So it's been it's been quite a journey of teaching and traveling the world and just getting to know all sorts of folks from, from different backgrounds. It, it, it has been a journey. That's a great story. And, you know, I remember when that sale happened, I didn't realize it was quite 25 years ago, but I remember thinking, oh, Kaplan just bought them. And so they'll go away because I remember they want to one of them out there at this point. I think I was still 99. Yeah, I was still in college. Hadn't quite graduated yet. And I remember that happening. So, you know, time flies, that's for sure. Yeah. And the and the Swayzer brand is still prominent in the C, in the CFA exam market. It was one of my goals as the leader to keep that name because it had uh had such resonance in the market. Yeah, no, Swayzer definitely has residence and yeah, exactly. It's the CFA market is where I always knew about it. I know that's where their kind of their core bread and butter was. So that makes a lot of sense. So you you answered this a little bit. You mentioned originally you wanted to get the PhD to be a finance professor. So did you, you did that for a couple of years, right? Did you teach for a few years at Iowa before you started the business or? Yeah. So I, I taught as a graduate student, uh, primarily at the University of Iowa, and then as an adjunct for a semester after graduation. And then I've taught out here at my undergraduate alma mater, which is the University of Wisconsin La Crosse. Uh, so I've been in the classroom, but the classroom that really energized me was standing in front of a room of folks who want to earn the CFA designation. And boy, talk about a difference in motivation. You stand in front of uh, 30 college undergraduates, uh, some of which are sitting in the back with their feet up on the desk with <laughs> back then a paper copy of the USA Today in, in their hands, kind of listening out the side of their ear versus a hotel ballroom with 200 CFA candidates all at the edge of their seat wanting to know the the, the next thing that's going to come out of your mouth. So it was very serendipitous that uh, was able to fall into that kind of teaching in a professional education setting. It's uh, really rewarding. Sure. No, I, I could see the difference. I mean, one, people are very motivated. They spent a lot of money Often jobs depend on whether they can get it or not. And so you just have a different level of interest than somebody, especially the person that may be at college because mom and dad are paying for it. I'm living at home and I have no desire to be in school. I just want to go party at night, but yeah. I'm in the classroom. Yeah, I, that was the kid sitting in the back of the room with the paper copy of the USA Today in their hands. Mom and dad are paying for it. And they're just like, yeah, 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 whatever. Yeah, exactly. We've all we've all seen them. So I could totally see that different. I do some, you know, professional training as well. So I know what you're talking about. Like I said, you spent most of your career as an educator. You did University of Iowa, you know, you did this the CFA charter program. What motivated you to work as an instructor? Where does that come from? And especially teaching finance, what's the kind of the motivation and reasoning behind that? Well, the uh, I'll get to the why finance uh, part in a bit, but uh, I grew up in a musical family, in a performance family, so stage productions. My mom and dad trotted me and my two sisters out like we were the family von Trapp when I trap when I was, uh, you know, Sound of Music reference there, six years old, and we're supposed to sing for a party. Uh, so 
uh, performer, musician. That was my formal training and found out that it's just not that far of a leap from the stage and from uh, a choir in, into the classroom. Being an instructor, being a professor is kind of half performance art and, uh, and, and half education. There's a reason that people talk about edutainment uh, because it, contrary to some opinions, it, it really does matter from a student engagement perspective. So I just really liked doing all the work on the front end to take really complicated uh, bits of information, put them into a coherent uh, framework, and then pass that on to folks that you know, had almost no baseline for for what I was talking about. So that was just uh, really, really motivating for me. Got it. Now, it's great that it motivated you. And I do remember in your book talking about music and the role it played and wanting to, when you were younger, have a career in music there, I think. And then ended up deciding it was time to go to college. Yeah, that, that would have been nice uh, to be able to do a career in music. But you asked me a specific question about why finance. I started out as an economics undergrad. One of my great mentors uh, was a, a professor in the econ department, and I was going to go into the master. I was going to go get a master's and PhD. He said, he said uh, jump over the hall into the finance department. Those faculty members at the time were making twenty or $30,000 a year more. <laughs> <laughs> and it's and it's essentially the same or very similar uh, content. So I made the switch over to finance uh, to support my family maybe a little bit better than I would have been able to do as an econ prof. So you ran the numbers and said, okay, same amount of time, yep, similar work, and I make 30% more on average. Yep. Hmm. Hmm. As a finance or econ person, it's a pretty easy analysis from a Strictly numbers perspective, for sure. That's right. I can see your uh, guitar there in the uh, corner there. Do you still play a lot? Yeah, I'm currently in a band called The Remainders. We, our motto is rocking out and doing good. So we, uh, we play shows uh, in our local area for various philanthropic uh, organizations and local, f local festivals. Uh, we're a go big or go home uh, kind of, uh, of an act. So we've got a big stage production and uh, we've actually got some original music out on uh, Spotify and Apple Music, et cetera. So your listeners can go out and find us. We are the remainders uh, from here in La Crosse, Wisconsin. We have five original songs out. So Great. Well, I'll have to find those. We'll have to make sure we put those in the show notes so people can in enjoy them. So that's really cool. So, you know, obviously you guys sold to Kaplan and you stayed on at Kaplan for 20 plus years. I know most of that was the CEO of Kaplan Professional. And then you were also the head of uh, corporate learning globally. So, you know, can you talk a little bit about your time at Kaplan, what it was like, maybe some of the major things you worked on, and then just what kept you there for all those years? At the top of the show, I uh, indicated that my personal purpose is teach, coach, mentor, and and hopefully inspire. Every day at Kaplan, I was able to wake up, know that when I was driving into, into work or on the airplane to go see a client or one of our business units overseas, that today we were going to help people achieve their educational and career goals, that we were going to be creating, helping to create these Yahoo moments 
for uh, individuals and their families, helping them gain a credential to move up in their career, uh, have more economic opportunity in their lives. And, uh, you know, that uh, being in the education industry generally, whether you're part of a university system or in uh, professional education like I was, there's not much more that's more satisfying than that in terms of a motivator to get you out of bed and uh, and get one's rear end in into work. So when I joined Kaplan back in 1999, the professional education part of the business was very, very small. Uh, we had, uh, prior to the Swayzer acquisition, they had acquired a company called Dearborn out of uh, Chicago that did some real estate training and Series 7, Series 63, some insurance training. Uh, and you know, during my tenure, we were able to build a, a truly global professional education and certification uh, business that served tens and hundreds of thousands of students a year. So. It was quite a ride. That That's great. And did you find yourself getting to still teach a lot, even though you're running things? Did you step into the classroom from time to time and get to be that instructor? Yeah. You know, one of my great regrets, I stopped, I got out of the classroom back in uh, 2005 was the last time that I taught a class within the, within the Kaplan ecosphere because the leadership and management responsibilities were really taking over. Looking back at woulda, shoulda, coulda, it would have been wonderful to be able to carve out just a little bit of time to stay in in the classroom. But I'm happy to report that next spring, I'll be back in the classroom at the University of Wisconsin Lacrosse teaching a course based on the book that hopefully we'll get a little time to talk about today. Great. Yeah, I know we will get there here uh, in a few minutes. So now that's exciting. I'll be Great to be back in the classroom. And, you know, so I want to ask you a little bit, obviously, Kaplan, one of the big things is CFA. You obviously did a lot of material around that, you know, knew a lot about that. Earlier this year, they announced one of the most significant changes they've made in that I can ever remember, where they've added the practical skills section for level one and two, right, of the exam. It includes financial modeling, Python, and I believe data science. I'd love to get your thoughts on that change, what you think about that, maybe how it would benefit people why they did it, any kind of just thoughts in general on it. So I've got three words. Hopefully this adds up to three. It's about time. That was my thinking. (laughs) Yeah. You know, look, you know, we're going to talk about Financial Modeling Institute uh, a little bit later, but, you know, FMI is one of the only institutes that's delivering a truly experiential credentialing process. You have to build a financial model to pass that exam. You could pass the CFA exam by doing a lot of jam and cram into the old noggin, go in and (laughs) regurgitate a bunch of stuff that you're never going to remember, and all of a sudden walk out with some you know, also you had to have some work experience, but you were able to put the letters C, F, and A behind uh, behind your name. It is uh, wonderful news that uh, some experiential, some practical skills are starting to work their way into the CFA uh, into the CFA program. I'm so proud of of what they're doing there, and I just I wish them all the best, and I hope they just keep going on this path to make the CFA process 
more directly connected in the flow of work, because I'm all about education and continuous learning in the flow of work, really making the CFA program more and more relevant. Yeah, you know, I did. So I never worked the investment side. I did level one and just decided, you know, I'm not going to work in right investment bank or anywhere where I really need this and kind of, you know, switch gears and ended up not doing the other two. But it definitely felt a little bit like the cram, right? Just and regurgitate it. Can you memorize all these formulas that you're never going to use in the form that you're memorizing? And some of those type of things, not to say it was bad. There's definitely good material and you learn, but I just love that they're now adding more of the work learning the experiential, as you mentioned, because you know, learning needs to do that more in general, in my opinion, because the best way we learn is by doing things that we're going to apply in the job every day. Because if you don't apply the learning, you just forget it. You just did a memory dump. Look, the employer that's buying the talent and the assumption is somebody has the letter CFA behind their name, that they're going to be able to they're going to be more valuable to the shareholders, to the stakeholders of the business, the, the ultimately to the consumer. They're going to be able to hit the ground running faster than somebody that doesn't have those letters uh, behind their, their names. And I think that's been a little bit of a question mark of whether or not that's actually true in the marketplace. So CFA Institute, again, really proud of them for taking this step so that a candidate can and really, truly differentiate themselves in the employment market. In today's business world, financial modeling skills are more important than ever. With Financial Modeling Institute's Advanced Financial Modeler Accreditation Program, you can become recognized as an expert in the field by validating your financial modeling skills. Join the Financial Modeling Institute's community of top financial modelers gain access to extensive learning resources, and attain the prestigious Advanced Financial Modeler Accreditation. Visit www.fminstitute.com backslash podcast and use code podcast to save 15% when you register. So you mentioned, you know, uh, Financial Modeling Institute and what they're doing and how you love it. So last year you joined the board of FMI. And I know at the time you talked about how excited you were to help advance the message globally of the importance of financial modeling. So how's that experience been like? What have you learned, maybe done? How's it been for you? It's been 18 months now? Yeah, it's uh, it's been 18 months. Ian Schnur is the, you know, the big brain behind uh, the the whole FMI thing. He's been on your show. I recommend that all of your listeners uh, connect with Ian on LinkedIn and learn more about him. I've been in and around the financial modeling education world for quite some time, and I looked at several acquisitions while we were while I was still at Kaplan, trying to enter that that marketplace. And uh, I'm so proud to be be affiliated with and be able to serve on the board to help grow the Institute and give back whatever I can uh, from my years of experience in credentialing and higher education to make sure that 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 credential is as impactful and valuable to its holders as it possibly can be. That's great. So it sounds like you uh, definitely were in and around and looked at a number of financial modeling things, always saw the value of that in the overall process and 
Sounds like the experiential learning that FMI does, another thing you loved, that idea of, okay, if you got the credential, you've proven you can build a model. I don't need to question whether you have that skill or not. Where with some others, it's like, okay, I know you're good at memorizing, or I know you've learned this, but am I sure you can do the job? And so it feels like that's something you really like about it. And so, you know, maybe speaking to that, why do you think people should consider earning that accreditation? What do you think the value having a financial modeling accreditation brings for people in the finance field? Because just about everybody in finance, whether it's corporate investment banking, you're going to do some modeling at some point. It's just a matter of when, not if. Well, look, when you're in business, and I don't care what industry you're in, I don't care if you're an accountant, uh, a finance professional, uh, a business leader, you're making decision after decision after decision. We, we make hundreds, if not thousands of decisions a day. Many of them we're aware of, but the ones that are we're consciously aware of in the flow of work, almost all of them have some connection back to the financial performance of the business. And I've just seen in my personal experience, in business all around the world, folks get caught in the trap of emotion. They get caught in the trap of ego uh, as it relates to decision-making that I feel that X, Y, or Z is a good investment. And yes, your feelings matter, but should we be making big decisions about the application of the capital either human or uh, physical or monetary capital is going to be applied on a hunch and a whim. And I've seen (laughs) that movie over and over and over again. And then, you know, things go badly and everybody looks around their shoulders, points their fingers in multiple directions, (laughs) and then asks the question, well, why didn't we have more financial rigor behind our decision-making? So it is time to really make uh, financial modeling an essential baseline gotta have for, again, not just acquisitions, not just big uh, capital machinery or or building uh, purchases, but our budgetary processes in companies, a lot of the underpinnings in com- a company's budgetary process are also based on those whims and I lick my thumb and I stick it up in the air <laughs> and I, or, or I'm looking at some historical trend and assume that that's going to continue into the future. Man, we just need a lot more rigor here. I, I 100% agree. And you know, two things come to mind. First is I still remember asking somebody, I wasn't there at the time, or I was there, but I wasn't involved in it. They were exploring bringing in a company, right? A couple of companies, a big, it was a big transaction where would be folding in, you know, multiple companies. And I asked him, I go, did it make sense? He goes, no, that thing was sprinkled with uh, unicorns and rainbows and it still didn't make sense. <laughs> but, you know, they wanted it done and it ended up falling apart. And I'm like, Good thing it fell apart. It was one of those where it's like, Yeah, they threw out the whole rigor process and just kept making assumption after assumption because somebody had a feeling that this is what we should do. And I want your listeners to understand that I'm not just preaching and I've done it all right my my whole career. I have made those uh, gut-based decisions. I have let 
ego and emotion get in the way of decision making. So when I point a finger over here, uh, I know that three more are pointing right back at me. And if your listeners get anything out of this uh, episode, just remember that and have a bit of humility, be vulnerable, know that you're going to make mistakes. It's okay as long as you learn from them and move forward. You and me both. Like, you know, when we talk about just the importance of modeling, I look back at a lot of the models I built, you know, just garbage. (laughs) And it's because I wasn't taught good design principles. I didn't know what I'm doing. You know, I'm now going to be taking the FMI here soon. I was originally signed up to take it in 2020. COVID hit. It got canceled. I kept delaying it. Then my work got so busy, I put it on hold. And so when we started this podcast, one of the first things in said to me is you do realize you're going to have to do the AFM, right? (laughs) Well, let me finish because I just did the FP&A certification with AFP. I'm like, let me finish that one first. Then we can talk about when I'll take yours. I'm not doing both in my full-time job, but you know, he was great about it. And the day I posted that I'd finished it, I knew it was coming. I look at the comments on LinkedIn and we've been waiting for you and it's in. And I just kind of laughed. So yeah, got to do that. And I'm I'm excited. I mean, I built models, but I don't do a lot of three statement modeling because I work for large companies and that's not a typical thing. So I'm like, I'm going to have to bone up here a little bit and make sure I'm, you know, really polished to do it in four hours. Right. But I'm excited for it. It'll be good. You know, moving on, just kind of changing subjects a little bit. I know we mentioned this earlier, but you've written a few books. You know, you have the uh, the most recent one that's getting ready to come out is called The Balance Business. I believe it's Building Organizational Trust and Accountability Through Smooth Workflows. I actually have it back here. Your other one's upstairs at the moment. Awesome. So tell us about the book. What motivated you to write that book? Yeah, so my my first book is called Balancing Act, Teach, Coach, Mentor, Inspire. It's a business book slash autobiography. Uh, I tell the story of a series of balancing acts that we play in our lives, both personally and professionally. The arc of that book finished with a focus on the balancing act between trust and accountability in organizations. Uh, And we're out of balance on that front right here, here in 2023. And what I mean by out of balance is the pendulum has swung toward organizational health and everybody liking each other and working uh, well together. And and we want to build that organizational trust. And accountability has kind of taken a bit of a backseat over the last uh, few years. So to have an organization where trust really shines, you must have proper accountability frameworks in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there, uh, trust is like a ladder. And if accountability is uh, challenged, you go, and if you're on the top rung and something goes wrong, you go right down to the bottom, just like that, of of that trust ladder. So having those proper accountability frameworks in place is, is important. So what I'm all about is the blend of organizational health and continuous improvement. So though what I do is I bring those two practices together into a management operating system that you can install at your business. So the second book is a how-to, and it contains all the stuff that you need, you must have in your management operating system, and none of the stuff that you don't. Uh, so it's a very no-nonsense 
uh, book, and I start right off. I try to punch everybody right in the nose with the concept of the accidental manager. I'm an accidental manager. There are millions of us who've been tapped on the shoulder and say, oh, you were really good as an individual contributor. Would you like to manage five people? Sure. And then how You're do gonna I do that? You're going to pay me more? Why not? <laughs> right. And then it's like, okay, how do I do this? All of a sudden then, again, ego takes over. We all fall into firefighter mode and hall monitor mode. And we really haven't been trade, trained on how to lead people. So that's the kind of secondary thread that runs through the whole book is this concept of the accidental manager how you get there and how you uh, move past being an accidental manager. I'm excited to dig into it and read more about that. But one thing I really liked as you talked about that is, you know, just the importance of accountability, right? For organizational health and trust, you have to have both. And I'm a big fan when we teach, you know, FP&A courses often teach about business partnering. And one of the first things they teach is how it's about trust. And this is a quote I heard back when I was 20. And I love it for the concept. Some people will say, well, that doesn't quite make sense. But it said, it's better to be trusted than to be loved. And the example they gave is, right, as a parent, you're always going to love your child. Doesn't mean you're going to trust them. You might, you might always want what's best for your employee and like the person, but that doesn't mean you're going to trust their work. And so it's just the idea that it's harder to earn trust as a general rule for most healthy relationships than to be given love because people by nature, especially when it's family, will love them. And how do you earn trust? You deliver what you've promised on time in a form that the recipient can use and move forward. Uh, and you do that repeatedly, reliably through time. No nonsense. And, you know, be, be a good colleague. You don't need to make friends with everybody at the office. And one of the things I talk about, it's kind of a side point in the book, but your coworkers are not your family. And people get the kind of, oh, I, 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 I work in this wonderful organization and it's like a family. No, you, your families are messy. Families are hard. <laughs> you don't want to bring all that into the world of work. Why, why would you want to do that? <laughs> yes, families are messy and the whole, you know, the other example I give is, We've all had the coworker we'd love to go have a drink with, but we don't want to work on a project with them. Right. <laughs> you know, you, why? Has not, it's not has to do with whether you like them or not. It has to do with the trust factor. They're not delivering right. results. You don't trust them to deliver. That's right. And so, yeah, I, I really like that. And I think that's a, a great balance. And I agree with you. Sometimes we get too focused on the organizational health and it's finding that right balance because you can't, can't be truly efficient in an organization without both of them. If you have a toxic culture, but you're delivering a lot and you're holding people accountable, you're going to have a revolving door and it's going to hurt you over time. You know, and if you have great health, but you're not holding people accountable, your financials aren't going to support it over time. One or the other is going to be out of balance. Yeah. And, and the person that ends up paying for it all is your customer. And we lose sight of the customer as our North Star so often in business. It, 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 it seems so easy and so kind of, well, duh, but the customer gets left behind so often in, in this world because we get wrapped up in internal politics and, and internal workflows and we kind of forget that everything that we're doing is to create stickiness and value for the customer. 
And to bring that back, you know, for all our finance people that are listening, who you're delivering that model to is the customer. If you're doing FP&A and the CFO could be your customer, or the salesperson you're supporting, if you're doing investment banking, you got you to gotta look at it and go, I love how somebody said it, it goes, your spreadsheet is not the product. It's like the insights you're giving the business, that's your product. Right. The spreadsheet's just a delivery method. And, you know, that's just so true. And I think sometimes we forget that when you're, well, I'm just a, in a support role. No, you still have a customer. And yes, there's an end customer as well. You should know them, but you should also know who your internal customer is. One of the things I talk about in the book and one of the things I like to coach folks on, especially in accounting, finance, these these roles, uh, technology as well, these roles where you, you can be pretty far away from the end customer is to sit down with your team and sit down with yourself in a quiet place and really think about how does the work that I do every day add value along a value stream that ultimately gets delivered to the customer. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a game changer for a lot of folks because you can get lulled into a sense of, well, my work really doesn't matter to the end customer. But at NASA, when you're sending somebody up to the moon, everybody's involved the janitor is involved in putting somebody on the moon. And once you, once you start thinking like that, as teams, as individuals, really good things happen. Great point. And so much of it is about mindset. And, you know, we talk about this whole balancing act. That's the name of your podcast. Congratulations. I know you recently passed 100 episodes. So I'm, I'm curious, what motivated you to start the podcast? So you are building an audience. Uh, I'm building an audience. It, the podcast really solved two things for me. One was from a marketing uh, and a platform perspective. It's a really good way to get your message out there. But a really close second to that was staying connected to the community that I had built over decades and there is something just uniquely satisfying about being on a show like this, reconnecting with a former colleague or somebody that I did business with in the past and working together again to create what I consider to be a public good, which is this totally accessible thing called a podcast that anybody can listen to at any time for free or near free and glean some insight. So it connects right back to my purpose of teach, coach, mentor, and hopefully inspire. Uh, so the podcast was a real no-brainer for me. No, it makes sense. And I know I love doing it. It's a great way I get to learn from others. I get to meet amazing people all over the world and and talk to them and hear their stories. Things that I probably would never get to do otherwise with a lot of people I talk to. Like I know podcasts is how we got to know each other, you know? And so here we are for the second time. You getting to be on the other side of the mic, but it's, it's great to do those type of things. So appreciate that. So we're going to move into uh, our second to last section here. It's what I call rapid fire. So I have a handful of questions I'm going to ask you you get 10 seconds to answer them. On those that it applies, you can't give me an it's depends. You got to take a side. And then at the end, you can pick one or two of those to elaborate a little bit on. So fun, some of these will be financial related. There's one or two that are just kind of in here for fun. And I'm going to go ahead and run through these. So the first one, if you could meet one person dead or alive, who would you meet? Getty Lee. Getty Lee. All right. Circular or no circular references? Circular. Life is circular. All right. Horizontal or vertical models? 
Uh, horizontal, absolutely. All right. Will AI ever build the models for us? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. Will Excel ever die? Yes or no? No. All righty. Do you agree with the phrase that financial models are the number one corporate decision-making tool? Yes. What is your favorite thing about Excel, function or feature? That it's still around. <laughs> <laughs> that you don't have to learn a new tool? Right. Uh, that, that's the first time I've got that answer. I'm going to remember that one. So feel free, if there's one or two of theirs you'd like to elaborate a little bit on, go ahead. Uh, you know, Excel will Excel ever die? Yes or no? Um, I, you know, I say no because, you know, I've lived through several cycles of, oh, Excel is dead. Uh, oh, Excel is dead. Oh, Google just came out with Sheets. Excel is dead. And it doesn't die. So, <laughs> and then... Will AI ever build models for us? The answer to that was uh, an emphatic yes, but there's a but to that sure. where the human oversight, the the human aspect of creativity, critical thinking, curiosity, those are, especially the creativity and the curiosity, those are things that uh, AI might have 20 years from now, but it's it's uh, going to be a long time. And I'm with you as well on that. I agree. They can they can build the structure. They're already doing some basic stuff on that and get there. But you need that human with that critical thinking, the creativity, the judgment, and things that just it's really hard for AI to have to finish it off. Maybe get you 80% of the way there or whatever the number is. Very, very exciting. And I, I agree with you on the Excel thing. We always get to hear, you know, Excel, Excel is dead. And I was like, if I had a dollar for every time I heard that, right? <laughs> We're heading into just kind of the wrap up here. So we have two questions for you before we finish. So first one, if you could offer one piece of advice that you've learned over your career that you could share with our audience to be better modelers, what would that be? That message is to develop human skill, develop yourself as a human being, because it's not just all about the numbers. It's about how you communicate. It's about your level of curiosity. It's about the questions that uh, you're able to ask. It's about putting yourself in the shoes of someone who is not as financially adept as you are. And it's about becoming uh, and thinking of yourself as a teacher, as a coach to those who don't understand the financial side of things as well as you do. And if you're sitting back in your chair, looking down your nose at somebody because they don't have all the financial prowess that you do, <laughs> please get out of your own head and please develop a sense of empathy and compassion for those who don't have the skills that that you do because you're in this wonderful position to lift the whole organization. And if you're condescending, if you're rude, if you're judgmental, you're going to go nowhere. Great advice. And you know, I don't think we I've heard on my financial modeling podcast yet, but I completely agree. The words empathetic and compassionate. Generally, not when you think what you think about when you think modeling, but it's so true. Absolutely. As a leader, as a modeler, as somebody who needs to communicate things, you need to have both of those. And at the end of the day, modeling is about communication because you're helping communicate insights derived from data and assumptions to drive behavior or changes or decisions. 
And so it's it's all about communicating, whether you're working in the spreadsheet or talking to somebody. And I think we often forget that. And so last question here, if our audience wants to learn more about you or get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, so follow me on LinkedIn. We're also out on Instagram and, and Facebook. I left uh, Twitter or X uh, early this year just because I got so fed up with that, that, that whole deal. Uh, but <laughs> but you can uh, you can find me at andrewtempty.com. My last name does not have a P in it, so don't try to squeeze one in there. You won't find me that way. All right, great. And we'll definitely put the links in the show note. And if there's any other links you want to share that you'd like for our audience to have, please you know, send those over. And thank you again for being on the show. I've really enjoyed chatting with you and look forward to releasing this. Thank you so much, Paul. Financial Modelers Corner was brought to you by Financial Modeling Institute. Visit FMI at www.fminstitute.com backslash podcast and use code PODCAST to save 15% when you enroll in one of their accreditations today.